This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network presenting Art of War with Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Hello and welcome to the episode 19 of the Art of War podcast. This week, we're going to be actually doing something different for you listeners. We're going to be interviewing Nick Nanavati about his Iron Hands list, and we've brought on a special guest, Richard Siegler, to do the interviewing. So um, as all of you probably know, my co-host Nick is not somebody that needs a lot of introduction. He's won almost every major event that is available out there in the world. Um, And so why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, Nick, and, and talk to us a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. So I'm Nick. If you guys didn't know that, and we're on episode 19 of the podcast, I, I just don't know what to say to you. But um, yeah, we're we're going to talk about my list, which is cool. I get to be the interviewee, and we brought on Richard, because I figured who else would be the perfect fit for this, since he just stomped my butt at the last major we played at. Uh, last two majors, I should say. Oh, uh, this towel. So uh, Richard, if you want to introduce yourself, and then we'll jump right into the interview process. Sure thing. Uh, I'm Richard Siegler. Um, this is my first season playing competitive 40k, but um, I've been doing pretty well myself. Um, I've won Nova, Warzone, and Pro Tabletop, and I'm doing my best on the way to LVO. Yeah, so he is now number one in the ITC, so since I can't interview myself, I figured no one else is more qualified. Um <laughs> So, uh, Richard, are you familiar with the format? I'll kind of let you guide the interview since you know you're the interviewer. But if you have any questions, because I'm experienced at it, feel free to reach out. But I trust you. So, whenever Absolutely. you're ready, fire away. All right. So, I think the first thing we should start off before getting into your Iron Hands list is just talk about your ITC season so far. One of the interesting things and main differences between both of us is that you have actually switched between multiple factions this season, whereas I have played Tau the entire way through. Maybe if you could talk to the listeners about you know your experience of switching factions, why you do it, um, and how it fits in your personal playstyle. Definitely. So I used to actually be a lot like you in that I stuck to a faction and that was that. So I used to play Chaos exclusively, pretty much all through sixth and seventh edition. Uh, when eighth started, I also I continued playing Chaos. Uh, then they started to fall behind the power curve, and I didn't want to fall behind with them. So I made a switch to Eldar. Um, and I stuck with Yanari for about a year or so. So still kind of playing an army and just rocking it for an entire season. Uh, and then only really the past year and maybe three, four months, or not even three, four months, about just about a year, I'd say, have I really gone full-fledged into I just play everything mode. Um, that's definitely had both a positive and negative impact on my play skill as a player. Um, it's definitely helped me learn about all the different armies, uh, even more so. I mean, as any experienced general knows, uh, in this game, you need to know the basics of every army. And as a top-tier player, you need to know the in-depth stuff about every army. But playing as the factions, you learn a lot of the nuances you just gloss over as the opponent when you sit there and build lists for them and that kind of thing. Uh, that also is kind of a byproduct of the coaching I do and the Art of War and all that stuff because... If I'm going to talk as if I know what I'm talking about for all these different factions and teach people how to play Blood Angels and Iron Hands and Tyranids and Orcs, I probably should know what I'm talking about. So it kind of goes hand in hand there. But that said, there is a bit of uh, Jack of All Trades, Master of None going on, which I think has impacted my ITC season a little bit. Whereas I used to know certain armies, every single thing about it, and like I could pull the, the 54th rabbit out of the hat when I really needed to, to get things going on the table, I might not even see that move now. And, you know, this is super high level. It doesn't come up every game or anything, but those are things I do kind of miss. And uh, I I noticed it with my iron hands. Like, 
I play in three three majors now with my Iron Hands. I think it's three super majors, my Iron Hands. But um, in all three of them, I've watched myself understand the army deeper. Like I can literally cite you things I was doing in, in this past pro tabletop tournament that I was not doing at SoCal or Wars in Atlanta. So that's really interesting. And that's the same for every army I played. So whether or not, I mean, I don't want to say that I'm better or worse than I was as a player because I don't think success is the only metric by which you can measure that. Uh, it's kind of an abstract concept. Uh, I am definitely seeing less success this season than I have in previous seasons. I've still won events, like I've won the Nova Invitational, my team won ETC this year on Team England. Um, I've, I've won like a some, couple smaller GTs, and I've placed highly in basically every single event I've been to. But I'm not getting those first place consistent finishes kind of like you are now, Jim Bessel was before, how I used to in the previous years. And I think that's because of um, the army switching I'm doing. But I'm still growing at the game. I'm still learning about all these different factions in super great detail, uh, more so than someone who just reads the codex, plays it against it a couple times, and thinks about it here and there. Um, so whether or not I'm better or worse off as a player for it, I'm not sure. Whether or not I want to continue the let's play everything kind of plan, also not sure. But uh, it's definitely good for growing as a player. I think it was a cool experience for me. So Nick, if I could jump in quick, does that? Yeah. So are, if I'm listening to you correctly, are you saying that specialization probably has some advantages uh, over what it, you're doing? It does and it doesn't. So when you're specialized, like Richard Siegler is with Tau, or like Jim Bessel is with Chaos, in an army or faction that's super strong within the respect to the meta, you're going to have amazing success. Like Sean is super specialized in other Sean Naden, Jim with Chaos, Siegler with Tau. Not to knock anyone off their pedestal here, but some of those players have had their armies, due to shifts in the meta, kind of come down a notch or two on the power ranking belt. Um, so you're not seeing those players as successfully win stuff as they had before. Uh, and that's that's not to say they're not as skilled. They might even be better than they were a year ago with those respective armies. But since they aren't adapting they're not seeing success. So there's definitely a lot of merits to specialization. You're seeing Sean and Jim pull rabbits out of the hat, as I put it, to win games they have no business winning and matchups they have no business being in. But they're not going all the way. They're not going the distance because their army is just not capable anymore. And this is not to pick on Sean or Jim or, or Eldar or Chaos. This is just conceptually. So being able to be like, okay, chaos isn't so hot right now, for example, I'm going to switch to Eldar, which is the change I made like a year and a half ago. Uh, that's, and then do that successfully. That's also a skill. That's really important. But doing it too often definitely gets you in trouble because chasing the meta is not the same as adapting. Adapting is like, okay, I can read the writing on the wall. I'm going to make some changes in how I do things. Chasing the meta is Gene Caesar Colt got a new codex. I'm going to play those. Orcs got a new codex. I'm going to play those. Iron Hands got a new codex. I'm going to play those. That's kind of what I've been doing. Um, in part due to my coaching, I want to be, if, I, if Iron Hands comes out in October, I need to teach 100 people how to play Iron Hands by, by halfway through October. I should probably put Iron Hands on the table once or twice, you know? So it's a bit of that. But I don't want to make excuses here. It's there's definitely a limit to how often you should switch armies for sure. All right, great. Well, that you know, naturally segues into the question about why Iron Hands. What were the factors that led you to choose Iron Hands over, say, going to Tau or going to any of the other Space Marine factions, White Scars, or even mixing Space Marine factions? You know, what are those key factors that led you to choose it? So Iron Hands, to me, when the Codex first came out, and you got to remember this is before they nerfed them, so Ironstone and all that stuff. Uh, I never actually played Iron Hands before the nerf. But uh, Iron Hands, to me, then, was always the obvious choice. It was like, this is just brute force. This is raw power. This is just what everyone's going to do because this is what Matt says you should do. And that, to me, is a huge turnoff. Because one, you're public enemy number one. Everyone's going to be teching for you. Two, if everyone's also playing Iron Hands, which is the assumption we're going under, it's the new hot medalist, so people are going to swap how many Repulsor Executioners were sold out. I mean, you know, you saw the numbers. But I don't want to get myself in an Iron Hands mirror because that's 
you know, there's no skill. And I'm putting this in air quotes over here. There's no skill to playing repulsor executioners into each other. It's literally just who rolled better, who got first turn, who shot more repulsors before they died, or Iron Hands playing, same thing. So that was what I didn't want to do. So I went down this whole rabbit hole of um, let me explore some white scars with Iron Hands allies and then some Raven Guard and all kinds of stuff like that. And it was good. I definitely don't want to say like it was bad or anything. It just felt like I was missing that notch in power from Iron Hands. Like it always felt like I'm jumping through a whole set of hula hoops and doing a whole trapeze act where it's like I have to land this perfect symphony to actually pull my strategy off. Whereas an Iron Hands player in this example just did theirs. Like it just happened. Like they rolled dice and I picked up my models. I'm trying to line up master of snares on multiple repulsors with no overwatch while dancing their four of deny strategies. There's so much to do there. So while, you know, skill can play a huge factor and skill can get that stuff done. It's a, it's also only going to get you so far when you have to do perform that trapeze act seven times in a row to win a major. Like, you know, one of those times you're going to slip and break your ankle. And that's ultimately what happened in one of my GTs and I ended up losing. So that, Timing-wise, I went to that GT with white scars and janky stuff. Got knocked down a peg because my trapeze act fell apart. And then days later, Ironstone got nerfed along with the rest of Iron Hands. Just nerf, 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 nerf. And not to say that Iron Hands are bad, obviously. It's just, you know, they went from public enemy number one to, okay, let's bring this back in line with the rest of the world. So to me, that signaled, okay, maybe people won't be playing the stupid Iron Hands army of three repulsors or six planes and Ironstone. And this kind of opens up some opportunity for play here because it's also you're not they got rid of character dreadnought spam and all kinds of stuff. So then I I focused on building a different kind of Iron Hands list. I didn't want to just do your normal take something cheap and efficient, max out by three, take something else cheap and efficient, max out by three. That's just never been my style at this game. Uh, it still isn't. And if I did that and played a mirror, which would be common because that's what the go-to move is for Iron Hands players, or just players in general playing shooty stylists, then again, when I get myself in that same situation of a mirror is going to happen, presumably, and it's going to come down to who rules better. So I'm not trying to play that. So I built an unorthodox, with the help of some friends, like Jack Harpster helped me a lot. He's one of my local testing buddies. Um, but we together built a more skill-oriented Iron Hands list that went kind of counter meta, which at the time I predicted to be Iron Hands, um, and then like other things on the periphery like Tau, Eldar planes, that kind of stuff. Um, so I built a list that could handle all of those things uh, on a more skill-based transaction as opposed to a more luck-based transaction, meaning if I go second, I still have moves. If I roll bad, I still got play, that kind of thing. That's cool. So then... You're building a list that is, as you, I'm going to put words in your mouth here for a second, but you're building a list that's going to give you more ability to, to outplay your opponents by giving you, uh, I'm presuming, more mobility, uh, more um, uh, ability to respond or you know put firepower where you want on the board. Is that why you're Pure Iron Hands successor in order to benefit from their uh, doctrine? Yes. Um, you, you got the hit the nail on the head. I'm building a list, and this is what I do in all of my list building. I always try to build lists to let me leverage my play skill over my opponent as to leveraging list creation over my opponent. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to build the most efficient list in 40K. That's that Anyone with knowledge of how 40K works on a calculator can do that. Um, where that falls to me as a failing point is, one, if you hit a bad matchup, your list just you know, doesn't have play out of it, presumably, because you just took the most efficient units possible at math. Two, if you run into the mirror, which I talked about, or something similar in style, someone else who just took the efficient units out of their codex, you're literally just playing who built a better list. And if it's the same level of strength there, it's who rolls better. So I like to think that I know what I'm doing in this game as far as playing on the table strategically and tactically. So I want to try to build a list that emphasizes those strengths that I can bring to the table as opposed to build, emphasizing my list building strengths. Now there's definitely skill in the way I build that list as well, but it's a list designed to emphasize my player skill, not a list you know, that takes player skill out of it. I'm trying to put emphasis on my ability to outplay my opponent, not blunt that. Excellent. Well, since we've mentioned the list about a dozen times, let's actually get into it.
what are some of the key units, you know, the key framework for the list that you've ran in the last couple months? And then maybe some of the key changes that you've made between tournaments, between Warzone and Pro Tabletop, and potentially going into LVO. Sure. So I'll just run through the list from top to bottom. I'll go through the version uh, I took to Pro Tabletop since that's the most recent event, and then I'll go through and answer those questions. Uh, there, it's Iron Hands Brigade, one detachment, um, successors for Master Artisans and Stealthy. I know it's very original. Um, we have a Smash Captain. He's got a classic Thunderhammer Storm Shield jump back. We got a Tech Marine Warlord dude, uh, just walking around on foot. Uh, and we have a Librarian, uh, 88 points, minds his own business, casts his own powers. Uh, for troops, we got five units of five intercessors with stalker boat rifles and a sergeant with a chainsword. Uh, one unit of five sniper scouts. Um, then for elites, I ran a Redemptor, which is a very uncommon unit, but again, we'll get into the whys of that later, uh, with uh, Onslaught Gatling Cannon, heavy Onslaught Gatling Cannon, Storm Bolters. Uh, a Relic Contemptor with Twin Laz, uh, Dreadnought Chain Fist, uh, Cyclone Missile, and two Storm Bolters. Uh, yet another unpopular unit, but we'll get into that as well. Uh, a unit of four Servitors, because I needed an Elite Tax, and a Scorpius. Um, so I needed the fourth Elite in my Brigade because I had two Relics, Relic Scorpius, Relic, Levi uh, Relic uh, Contemptor. So that's why they're Servitors. Uh, in the fast attacks, I had two units of suppressors and one solo attack bike. And then for heavy supports, I had two Thunderfires and a unit of Devastators with four Grav Cannons and a Cherub and a Drop Pod. And that is it. All right. So there's a lot of interesting questions here. First, in your Dreadnought choice, a lot of Iron Hands players like Nick Rose are running the Invictors um, over the Contemptor mm -hmm. or any of these Contemptors. How come you went with these Dreadnought choices? Um, what are their advantages, and maybe if they have any disadvantages that you thought you could overcome? Yeah, so, I mean, their obvious disadvantages is that they're more expensive per point than Invictors. Uh, they generally also have less firepower per point than Invictors, and they don't have that scout move that Invictors do. They don't, read it, they don't deploy wherever they want. So those are a lot of... Invictors, to me, are a much more efficiency type of choice, which I covered earlier. Uh, whereas the dreadnoughts are much more of a, of a, I don't know, skill. I don't want to say skill, just like a, a more toolboxy type of choice. That's a good way to put it. So the why dreadnoughts over invictors? It all comes down to the fact that they are dreadnoughts. Actually, the dreadnought keyword is so powerful in Iron Hands. Uh, dreadnoughts and Space Marines in general have access to that strat for half damage, and then. In Iron Hands, you also have the ability to make them a character. Making them a character does a few things for you. Um, little known fact, it actually gives you plus one attack and leadership, which leadership never comes into play. But plus one attack, it's not bad. Like six attack Dreadnoughts with Shock Assault, not bad at all. You could even might have heroes them for seven. They could become combat monsters. Like, um, more importantly, you can buy them a Warlord trait. So often I would either buy them the five of female pain Warlord trait, which just puts them another levels of durability, especially when you start healing with those tech marine, with well, with the warlord tech marine. Um, and then also with the character keyword, you now have synergy with cognitive martyrdom, which is a strat for Iron Hands, one CP. You basically put it on a unit of infantry at the start of your shooting phase, and then you can pass wounds off to that infantry after you take your saves, after you take your damage. So what would happen is like, I, I, this is highlight of my tournament for as far as showing this off goes. I played against Davis Fry on stream, round one. Check it out if you have it on Pro Tabletop's Twitch channel. Uh, he's got three Melton Knights, double thermal cannons from Chaos. All three of them, I can't make this up, all three of them rolled ten shots. Not even like six and a four and a five and a five. Like all three of them just rolled double fives. It was something else. So 30 Melton shots coming my way. And I have my character, Jednaught. And I popped the strat, thankfully, at the start of the shooting phase to pass off the wounds. And I popped the half damage strat because it is a dreadnought, and he was iron stoned. So on a one, two, three, or four on his D6 damage, it's reduced to one damage because even if he rolls a four, halves to two, subtracts to one. After that, I get my five up invul save. Or if I was, uh, I forget which buffs I had on me, but with the relic contender, which is the dreadnought in question here, starts with a two up, he's stealthy. 
Uh, so in this case, he'd have a one up from cover. And if I had cast the plus one save power on him, I don't remember if I did, uh, he would have a zero up save. So he would actually be getting four up armor from Melta Cannons. Nonetheless, the, the 30 Melta Cannon shots, you know, hitting on threes, winning on threes, I would either get a four up save or five save, depending on what the situation was. Then I'd get a five, then I'd reduce all the damage. So two thirds of the time it's one, and then one third of the time, it's two damage because if he rolls a five or six, it halves to three, subtracts to two. Um, so I took a handful of damage. Uh, then I'd get Fumo Pains, five up in this case, from the Warlord trait. Then on a two up, I would pass off those wounds as mortals to my intercessors nearby. And those intercessors would often be behind a wall or something, so they couldn't just be blown up first and then targeted. It's whoa. very similar. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up for a second. Is that right? Like, I believe you, because I, I know that you usually do things the correct way, but you reduce <laughs> the damage, then pass it off? Yeah. It is so dumb. That I'm is... going to double check it now because I don't want to lie on my own podcast. <laughs> and that'd be embarrassing. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm 99% sure, because we did look this up. That is, um, that is so grody. Oh, my goodness. Because, you know, now you're, you're making me all subconscious. I'm looking it up right now. No, I believe you, but I'm just saying... Cause I, now I don't believe me. Because <laughs> intercessors have two wounds, right? So if you reduce, like, you say a laser cannon, or in this case, a thermal, a thermal lance down to one damage, so this thermal lance does half <laughs> half, uh, half of an intercessor, like, that, that's what you're yeah. getting out of the... Uh, yeah. so this, this is the wording of it. Until the end of the phase, when a friendly Iron Hands character model within three inches of the unit would lose any wounds as a result of an attack made against that model, the unit can attempt to intercept the attack. So after I lose wounds from the attack. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so he's, like I said, in this example, 30 Melta gunshots were fired across the table into this dreadnought. My intercessors took nine damage. I left them alive at one wound, so we didn't even kill a unit. And then my dreadnought took two. And then I healed those two away from 30 melted cannons. So that's kind of the idea behind the dreadnoughts, especially like later game, they can push forward um, and then nothing kills them as I just demonstrated. So having an unkillable model just barreling at your opponent that you can't even tie up realistically because again, he's got six attacks that are pretty quality in combat. Um, Whoa. It's very hard for my opponent to deal with. So that's interesting. So then do you stand that Dreadnought out front of your army? Yes, pretty much always. Maybe not in the very beginning of the game. Yeah, because um, it's, it's a character, right? It could hide behind your intercessors or whatever so else. Most people with Iron Hands do make character Dreadnoughts. That's not like a you know a novel concept. They almost always do it with a with a Dreadnought below 10 wounds. You know, oh, so he's you over have, 10. Like, your Mortis right. Dreadnought or your Venerable unshootable because character keywords blasting away for six turns i do it the opposite way i pick a dreadnought well above 10 wounds the redemptor's 13 the relic contemptor's 12 and they barrel forward because now they're unkillable i don't need to make him untargetable because he's functionally unkillable anyway as i just demonstrated so plus you, you want them to soak shots into that right like that's what you want you want them to shoot yeah, through all that realistically yeah sure shoot it yeah and then I, I'll walk my Smash Captain, my Librarian, my Tech Marine, all these characters right behind him. He will block for all of them because he's above 10 wounds, and I can't do anything about it. They just can't hurt my army. And then the okay. reason I have the Rel Redemptor and the Relic Contemptor is because they're two functionally very different Dreadnoughts. So in some games, if I can get away with it, I'll just use the Half Damage Strata 1 and the Iron Stone on the other, and then they'll probably both live. In other games, like the Melt the Cannon Knight version, the Redemptor just doesn't matter. Like, I don't need 20 strength 5 shots. I'm, I'd rather have two last cannons, cyclone missile, and an, a strength 14 damage 4 AP 4 chain fist. So I put every buff imaginable into that Relic Contemptor, let my Redemptor just go, and uh, he, you know, he died turn 1, who cares? And now I have one unkillable Dreadnought instead of two semi-killable Dreadnoughts. And vice versa in other games, like if I were to play Orcs or something, I don't need last cannons against Orcs. I want 30 shots off my Redemptor. So I pick and choose based on the matchup because they're just polar opposites as far as functionality goes. Okay, another, another quick question. So I noticed that you have a Chain Fist on your Contemptor. So between the Redemptor, the Chain Fist on the Contemptor, is that also providing you Counterpunch? So if people want to come and wrap your Dreadnoughts, you're like, fine, I'm going to punch you in the face and it's going to hurt, that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. The People ask me, like, why don't you just put two Twin Lads on a Cyclone on your, on your Dreadnought? And, well, he can't march up the table if he's only shooting. Someone will actually just touch him, and that's the end of that. 
can't have that happen. Uh, also against Raven Guard, um, it's one of the more notable things. Raven Guard, I have to use my infantry to screen, otherwise they're just going to be inside of me. So like five intercessors go screen, and any Raven Guard who player who knows what they're doing will wrap my intercessors because they simply can't be shot by my Iron Hands portion of my army. Um, but then the Smash Captain in that game will get Mastercraft, so he's AP4. I mean, he's got four damage. And then the Dreadnoughts, D6 damage on the one, so 50-50, he's killing a cent every time he attacks. And flat four on the other, you know, they kill cents. It's a, it gets it done. So at making these Dreadnoughts characters, uh, whether it's the Redemptor or the Contemptor, are you ever worried about giving up Kingslayer points in the ITC format? You know, you are the first person to ever take Kingslayer against one of my Dreadnoughts. <laughs> uh, I'm not worried about it because they, like I demonstrated, are so difficult to damage that typically, even if you do get Kingslayer, uh, you just even if you do take it, you won't score that highly on them. Similarly, in my list, uh, in this version, has four big game hunter targets. There's the Drop Pod, the Scorpius, and both the Dreadnoughts. And people have taken big game hunter against me often because uh, there are four targets for it. But the Scorpius is going to be out of line of sight, so it's probably going to be the last thing you kill. And if you're killing it, I'm probably tabled. Uh, one of the Dreadnoughts is just immortal, so that's a point you're missing. And then you can realistically kill the Drop Pod most of the time, but who wants to shoot the Drop Pod? Like You either want to hug the Drop Pod or ignore the Drop Pod. You never want to shoot the Drop Pod. So that's also a bit of a trap. All right, excellent. Uh, let's move on to... So oh, you want to continue, John? Yeah, I'm just I'm seeing a theme in his list in Nick's list, and I want to ask him about mm -hmm. it really quick if we can. So it looks to me like you're giving a lot of opportunities for your opponents to make, um, I would say false, false conclusions based on prior experience. So like they play against an Iron Hands player with character dreads, right? <laughs> and a thing that works really well against a lot of those, like Leviathan, for example, is just 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 to touch it or just to wrap it. And you're like, oh, hopefully that's your plan. Because if your plan is to come in here and try and wrap my dreadnought, I have all this counterpunch. I'm just going to punch you in the face. Kind of, sort of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to say I give them false uh, conclusions based on prior experiences because you know I don't. No one's ever actually just touched my dreadnoughts to try to wrap them. It's more that they, when you go into matchup theory in your list design, you're like, what are the things I have to be? Well, I have to have an answer for a Leviathan dreadnought that can't die because. You know, that's a thing that I could play against. And generally, people's answers to that are ignore it with speed or um, touch it in close combat. So people would answer my unkillable dreadnought in a very similar way, but you can't really ignore it because it's got 48 inch range on those last cans, 36 on those cyclone missile launchers, and you can't touch it because it'll hug you. So I've already answered those questions for my opponents. Like I kind of went the next level further. If I took a Leviathan with two storm cannons, how would my opponent answer it? Well, what if I don't give myself those weaknesses? Like I've thought about putting a Leviathan into this list and just giving it one storm cannon and one drill. So it's functionally the same. But then, you know, the reason I didn't is because it's 24 inches. People will just avoid it. So that's why I go back to that Relic Contemptor. So I think there's another important theme that we touched on here as well, which is um, the theme of secondary denial in your list. So Iron Hands are yeah. very much like Tau, both in how the army functions, in its durability, but also in how difficult it is to actually score secondaries. Against me, it's really hard to score Headhunter points or Mark for Death points. Because basically, if the Riptides and characters are dead, I already lost the game anyway, and you've tabled me. Um, your list seems to function in a similar manner uh, by design. Absolutely, yeah. I would say Iron Hands and Tower are next-door neighbors as far as playstyle goes. At least my version of Iron Hands, yeah, I should absolutely. say. Um, how about we talk about Suppressors? This is a fairly uncommon unit in a lot of Marine armies. Um, but I think Iron Hands are uniquely suited to bring out the best qualities. So maybe if you could talk about them. Yeah, so suppressors are a unit that are, uh, I'm very happy with them. You know, I get a lot of success out of them. But I don't think a lot of Marine type of armies can use them effectively. Uh, part of what makes them so good is their their ability to shoot 40 inches away in deep strike. That's, that's really why they function as a unit. So... They're not durable. They're three intercessors glued together in a unit. That's not hard to kill. 
So the way they stay alive is by showing up in a spot where your opponent can't realistically deal with them on turn two or turn three. Or if they do deal with them, it's it's a huge pain in his ass. So I mean, like, in most of my games, they deep strike on the very, very back board edge in a corner. Something like that. Or like just barely with line of sight of one target, that target's going to die, and then nothing's in line of sight of them. Something like that. The problem with suppressors in non-Iron Hands factions is that if you try to use them in that capacity, they're not near any of your characters because your characters are somewhere in the middle of the board, presumably, or give or take. Certainly not on the far corners. Um, so you have no rerolls. You're going to suffer that minus one to hit unless you're Ultramarines in Tactical Doctrine, but even then you're not benefiting from Devastator Doctrine, so you're only AP minus two. Being able to be AP minus three in Devastator and then also not suffering any penalties to hit, super strong. Iron Hands also give you Calculated Fury, so I'm rerolling ones to hit. And then because I'm Master Artisans, I get to reroll one of my twos. So presumably with six shots from your unit, in an ideal world, you roll a one, a two, a three, a four, a five, and a six. Well, Calculated Fury, I'm going to reroll that one. And then Master Artisans, I'll reroll that two. So more or less you get six hits, sometimes you get five. And then you're wounding on strength seven against whatever you're shooting at. And then you get one rerolled wound. So if you're wounding like anything not a tank or you know not T7 or higher, it's threes to wound. So four out of six of your things should wound. Then you get another reroll, so it'll be five. Or four out of five of your shots will wound, and you get a reroll, so it'll be five. On a bad day, you'll get to four wounds, but that's, that's less common. And I don't think I've ever rolled less than four wounds on them unless I shoot something tougher like a knight or a... a vehicle of some sort but and then it's you know they're all connecting it's ap minus three so you know unless even if you have a two up save you're still taking a five up like and ascending cover still only getting fours and it's taking like five saves at a time each one's doing a flat two damage it's just a very consistent unit and then also it, it gives the marine player something that they don't really have outside of suppressors um i mean invictors do have autocan so i can't really say that but Generally speaking, most marine armies do damage in the ones or in the D6s. Like you're taking LAS cannons and missiles, typhoon missiles, things like that. Or you're taking just one damage shots. My army does a ton of damage too. I have all the stalker bolt rifles on all the intercessors. Those are all two damage each. I have suppressors, those are two damage each. I have the scorpions is two damage. That, you know, is really great at certain things like against necrons with their quantum shielding just spamming two damage is the best way to do it against things with feel no pain like plague bears just spamming two damage basically makes their feel no pain useless drones makes the feel no pain useless uh, unless you're secret <laughs> so um, it, it having butt tons of damage two as your basic go-to instead of having damage one like most armies have you know their specialist weapons doing multiple damage but their basic gun does one my basic gun does too, and that's such a difference maker as far as quality goes. Mm. Do you feel that gives you a significant advantage in the Marine Mirror matchup? Uh, I think it definitely helps, especially like the more intercessors and centurions they take, the easier it is for me because I get to see real return on investment on those two damage guns. Uh, I think the biggest thing in the Marine Mirror matches that gives me the advantage is the fact that I have a model they can't kill, and they don't have a model mm. I can't kill. So anyone who takes invictors or repulsors or planes you know there's a million reasons to take those but they all die eventually like i played against a guy with seven dreadnoughts at a pro tabletop they were like a bunch of forged ones and stuff and he had tons of firepower don't get me wrong like it was devastating but at the end of the day around turn three i turned the corner in that game because i just did the march with the dreadnought that can't die and you know, he's picking up one of his dreadnoughts a turn, and then six dreadnoughts shoot back, and nothing happens. And eventually, that just leads to a win. Mm -hmm. One last thing about the suppressors: Do you ever utilize their ability to, if they kill a model in a unit, uh, then ignore Overwatch? Are you doing much charging with your army? Um, I've thought about theoretical uses for it. Uh, the, one of the big issues with it is it doesn't work on Tau because the thing I would want to use it on is like a Riptide, and you can't kill a Riptide to ignore its Overwatch because if you kill the Riptide, you've killed the <laughs> Riptide. Um, the closest I've come to using it is on Centurions. Um, generally speaking, I want to charge like my Smash Captain into Sense because he's going to be damage four. He'll fight twice or fight when he dies, and he's usually good for an entire Sense squad. He can't take their Overwatch. 
So I'll try to set it up where suppressors shoot the sense to kill a guy uh, in theory. So the smash captain can go in there and finish it off. Nine times out of ten, my sm my smash captain is either charging into sense that have wrapped intercessors, so I can't shoot them, or he's charging through a wall. So this has never actually come up in a game for me, but that's pretty much the only time I could see actually using it, aside from really niche scenarios. I've noticed that uh, in a lot of your lists prior to Atlanta, you were you were running three units of suppressors. Is is that just a concession to get the Scorpius into the list? Yeah, um, I mean, I would like that third unit, but the the Scorpius, especially in the Atlanta format, seemed really important to me because the Atlanta format has known terrain. You knew you had a wall to hide that Scorpius behind. You knew your opponent had a wall to hide his army behind. So that was peanut butter and jelly in my mind. I, I wanted better indirect fire. I wanted to go that extra mile. Uh, to really hammer people from across the table out of line of sight. And I did what I had to, to get that score piece in there. Any other questions about that, John, before we move on to uh, the big question called the drop pod? No, no I mean, uh, I think it's... Uh, we, we covered that pretty well, I think. Okay. So, yeah, let's so Nick, in your list, you have a drop pod which is also notoriously uh, known as something that your opponent's entire army can wrap, so you can't shoot it. When did you decide yeah. to take this drop pod, um, and how have you used it in your games to carefully avoid that kind of scenario? Yeah, uh, it is definitely a, a fear of mine. The liability of having a drop pod is enormous, because especially as a shooting army, if someone gets a good wrap off on it, game could just be over right there. So it's not fun bringing a loss condition with you in your army list. Um, with that said, I make it, I, I've never had a wrapped drop pod where it's like, this is game endingly bad. And I think in one game ever, my drop pod has been wrapped. Uh, and that was in a practice game. So there's a couple things I do with the drop pod. Um, the reason it's in my list, aside from bringing in the grabs so they can go nuke something is because it's kind of a, a momentum swing. Um, Oftentimes, my list will start out hiding because it's, the suppressors are in reserve, the drop pod grabs in reserve. The drop pod also gives me a place to put those five sniper scouts. Uh, generally speaking, I would rather put them in the pod. If you look at my list, nothing really dies turn one easy. Uh, now there's four servitors that, you know, they died easy. But prior to the servitor inclusion, which is only there for the Scorpius and the most recent variation, nothing died easy except for the scouts. So... If I put the scouts in the pod against other marine armies, their Thunderfires wouldn't pick up a kill turn one, and that's a huge momentum swing But as far as points go. But that's not the purpose of the drop pod. The, the army as a whole hides. There's 25 intercessors, two dreadnoughts, and undirect firing characters. That's what I deploy. So it's very small footprint-wise, and pretty much I can make it so the only thing that my opponent is not always, but most of the time, the only thing I can make it so the opponent can only shoot an unkillable dreadnought. That's great. For me to then push outward with my army is kind of dangerous because intercessors do die. Like suppressors do die if they get shot. All the stuff can die except the one dreadnought. So what I do is around turn one or two or three, whenever it makes sense, whenever the game has reached that point, I'll bring the pod in, I'll bring the suppressors in, and I'll Threat overload all at once. And usually when I bring those in, I'm also nuking key targets. So it's when I kind of can nuke key targets to reduce my opponent's firepower or his board control, whatever it may be. Then I'll also push out with both the dreadnoughts. I'll bring all the intercessors out to play. And that's like, I've dealt probably a very crippling blow to my opponent in, my pre in his previous turn. He's got to deal with the drop pod graph now. He's got to deal with these suppressors. He can't just be shot by them for six turns. Any game where my suppressors shoot for six turns, my opponent's lost. I can just tell you that. Um... So that kind of like distraction carnifex is for my intercessors to get into position for future turns. And that's kind of a momentum setter for me. Uh, how do I mitigate the pods ability to lose me games? That's the actual question you asked. So a couple ways, depending on what I'm playing against, if it's a quality army, like uh, sense or something, I'll just bring the pod in right in front of my army, like literally right in front of it. Or like maybe a little back in the depth of my army if I'm really that concerned. But I'll just bring it in in the midst of my army. And I'll dare someone to go charge it with sense or something and wrap it. Because then they're going to be right next to my four damage dreadnoughts. 
on my four damage smash captain. And you, you know, you've walked out of the frying pan into the fryer. So which way do you want to lose is kind of the what I'll do with that case against other armies like yours with the Tau, where, you know, my charge is not going to be so devastating. I'll charge in with my dreadnought, kill four drones. Who cares? Uh, or against gaunts, like spamming gaunts or orcs or something like that. I have to be super careful with the pod. Uh, so he will often go into super far corners of the table where not near any objectives. So if my opponent wants to go wrap him, you know, by all means, go ahead. It's very inconvenient for him. has nothing to do with the actual game being played over here when the pod is 45 inches off to the side. Um, and I'll keep the door shut generally because that just reduces the footprint of the pod, makes it even harder for him to hug. That kind of thing. It's like, you know, if you want to send whatever squad all the way into the middle of nowhere to go deal with it, be my guest. I'm just going to take that squad out of the game for as long as possible. And then the last thing I'll do, I guess, is, you know, that, that's pretty much it. No, I'll decide. Uh, no, there's a bit more. I will not bring it in on certain turns. Like turn one, if I see a really great alpha strike where I can come in and knock out two vehicles or something, that's really tempting. Don't get me wrong. But if that means my pod will be in some place where it can be used as a wrap target in the future, I'll forego it. Like I'll absolutely not take advantage of that two vehicle momentum shift because it'll long-term lose me the game. So it's a, it's a, a lot of discipline there as well. So quick question about the pod. Does the threat of it force your opponents to screen and play in a way? Like are you using the threat of it coming down as a, a tool in your game plan, Nick? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Obviously, if my opponent doesn't screen the pod, I will come in happy and just show up with the pod, nuke some vehicles, nuke a big target, and you know that's awesome. I'll happily do that. What most players do, because they don't want that to happen, is they'll try to screen the pod. Uh, and it's got 24-inch range out of the disembark, so it's not the easiest thing in the world. It is doable, which is like the perfect thing I want. Difficult but doable for my opponent. Because if he screens it, he's going to have to invariably put himself in the open because there's just not that much terrain where you can screen out 24 inches from every angle and not be seen. That's just very unrealistic. So when he puts his screening units out into the open, his scouts or whatever have it, I just choose not to bring the pod in on that turn. This has to start on turn one because the pod can show up on turn one. Um, so I can just choose not to bring it in on turn one, and then I, I just shoot away the scouts, no problem or whatever the screening unit in question is. And then I, it's a very easy way for me to get kill, kill more on the early turns, old school if I chose that. And then my opponent has to keep it up. Like on turn two, he's got to also screen with more scouts, more kills. Uh, pretty, pretty much until he decides I can't afford to screen this pod anymore, or he runs out of screens. Um, so the pod either hits hard and kills the target I actually wanted to kill, or it racks up a death toll of all of his screens by just existing the threat of it. So it's, again, another lose-lose situation for my opponent by just taking one. It also gives you the opportunity, again, to outplay your opponent, right? Because I imagine if they screw up in their screening or don't realize that the pod is, like, I don't think, I, I, think, I guess it's not really an unknown, right? Everybody knows that, Grav devs kill whatever they shoot at. I mean, they just destroy stuff, but yeah. So yeah, the grab pod doesn't ever like not kill its target. It's very rare. Usually if I'm hitting, if I'm coming down because my opponent did like some lack of screening on turn one or something, uh, you know, it hits almost 100% of the time. Not quite, but like with the cherub, the one guy hits on twos, reroll ones from Calculated Fury. And I don't need any support from a character or anything. So that's one of the nice things. I could be totally in the corner, and I'm not hitting on fours with no rerolls. I'm hitting on threes, real ones, and then Master Artisan's real one of my twos. So eight shots hitting on twos, real ones, then 12 shots hitting on threes, real ones, and then real one of those twos. It's usually about 16 or 17 hits. And then with the strats, um, I do rerolling fives to wound, because presumably I'm hitting a tough target like a vehicle or Magnus or Morty or something like that. So that's about a 55% wound rate. But there's another strat, which is Iron Hand specific, whereas it's every gun in my unit targets the same unit. So in the case of shooting a linchpin target like a Repulsor, a Magnus, something like that, it's definitely all targeting the same unit. 
uh, sixes explode. Sixes count as two wound rolls. So that's essentially the same as plus one to wound from a math perspective, but it's so much better because you're re-rolling to wound, fishing for more sixes. So it's not uncommon for my my 16 hits on my 20 shots to convert into 12 wounds because it's fives to wound re-rolling and sixes explode. Uh, that is that is not uncommon at all. Um, so it's just so lethal. And then flat four AP, unless you have an invul, you're probably just not getting a save. And then re-rolling damage means even against like things like Centurions, when you're rolling D3 damage versus Cent, you could roll a 1, then a 2, then a 1 or something. And even taking 3 hits to kill 1 Cent kind of sucks. That doesn't happen. That's just not a thing. You're taking at least 2 damage almost every time on an average. Like maybe I will roll a 1 damage into a 1 damage, but I've rolled so many more 3s than I should that it just made up for that by a mile. Yeah. So the unit just hit hits so hard. The grav hit me so hard in our first game at Warzone Atlanta that I just stayed on the three-up invulns the whole game <laughs> at Pro Tabletop. Yeah, it was really annoying. Was really- <laughs> I was like, I am not going to lose a Riptide in the first three turns. I don't care. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, the grav, the grav is never... The only time the grav doesn't kill a target is if I shoot like 30 orcs with it or something because it's not really designed to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, or if I shoot... And it'll still kill 20 of them or something, or like 15, 16. Uh, and that, or if uh, if I split fire because I don't get that exploding, I don't six six strat, and I don't get, uh, I just probably you know things go wrong when you split fire. All right, so we've covered uh, quite a bit of the units in your list. Why don't we shift over to talking about some of the important pregame decisions that you use, such as the warlord traits, the relics, and then any psychic powers that you decide to take. Yeah. So it's all matchup specific, which is one of the beautiful things about Space Marines these days. You, you can kind of customize your army at the table. Uh, pretty much always my tech Marine will take plus one to heal. The notable exception to that is against uh, Chaos or Raven Guard with uh, the psychic powers that they can do to snipe characters or just Raven Guard doing Raven Guard things to snipe characters. Um, I'll take the female Pain Warlord trait. So that way he is a, you know, a little bit tougher against that. Especially against Raven Guard, they have the one guy, super awesome Phobos captain, who shoots a flat four damage shot from across the table, ignores the line of sight at characters. That'll just pick up characters, and I'm not about that. So with Feel Pain, the Warlord generally survives that, even if he fails a save. I have to make one of my four or five ups, so it's not too hard. Um, but otherwise, I'll just take plus one to heal, get that Dreadnought going longer. Um I don't really do much pregame. Um, I'll only ever buy a chapter master if it's I'm playing in someone with like lots of hit modifiers. So plague bear spam. Not that that really exists much anymore. Um, uh, Eldar flyers, of course. But if I feel like I'm going to be doing a lot of close combat, I will also buy a chapter master, and that's against horde armies or things of that nature. So, um. Things like Orcs or Tyranids, I'll buy a Chapter Master, especially Nids, because they have multiple hit modifiers as well between their Psychic Powers and then Gene Seer Cult Powers and the Malanthrope or Venomthropes if they have that. But also, when you get into close combat, when the other guy's charging you, Orcs and Tyranids, things like that, getting full rerolls to hit on Overwatch versus just reroll ones on Overwatch, it's so much more efficient, especially if you want to use the strat to do exploding five, or fives to Overwatch instead of sixes. Um, like on a Redemptor, fives rerolling everything Overwatch is actually quite devastating, and people don't really see that coming. Uh, then, of course, in, when you're locked in close combat, uh, being able to reroll everything instead of just rerolling your ones over a lot of time against those hard armies does add up really well. So that's those are the times I'll buy the Chapter Master. Um, I'll Mastercraft my uh, my what you call it, Smash Captains. Thunderhammer in most games, uh, especially against Sense or basically anything where I think four damage actually matters. The exceptions would be against things like Gaunts, uh, where I just wouldn't bother, or something like that. Uh, if I don't do that, I'll either buy the Toma Malkador from my Librarian just to get him some more powers, or I'll buy the Feline Pain Warlord trait or, or uh, Feline Pain Relic for Adamantine Will or Mantle, whatever it's called, just to get uh, more toughness on like my smash captain uh pretty much always by the iron stone for the tech marine that's like just how my list is designed to function so 
do that. Uh, don't really do much else. Pretty much always buy make a dreadnought a character. Uh, generally, always get and feel vibe feeling pain. Um, that's pretty standard. Uh, the exception to that is Raven Guard because you don't actually want your dreadnoughts to die against Raven Guard, and you'll actually, even though you have gained five of female pain, the plus one to hit, plus one to wound that they gain against you is certainly not worth it, and that's a two CP adventure you go on. So I skip that. Um, I don't make much use out of Student of History, and I think that's a mistake on my part. Student of History is the Warlord trait that lets you consolidate six inches in whatever direction you want, not just towards the enemy. Uh, it's nice for letting your Smash Captain charge something and then just leave without worrying about getting punched back, especially like if you can leave back behind your screens or something like that. I've I've also uh, I've also seen that that particular trait used on character dreads. So like if somebody yeah. rolls in and touches your character dread, you can just walk out of combat when you consolidate out of it so you can shoot the next Right, one. right. My character dreads generally want to be in combat, it, so I don't find that to be right. necessary, but th it is a tactic. Um, I don't know. I, I've, I've thought about it a lot, right? Like, So I want to use student history. I think it's an amazing rule. I've not really ever taken it because I just keep finding myself in situations where I don't care for it, but I feel like that has to be a mistake. I don't know why somewhere deep down inside that rule is too cool for me to feel like I can't use it. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much all I do pre-game stuff. For Psychic Powers, uh, my go-tos are plus one to hit and plus one save. Uh, I don't really remember what they're called. They're Iron Hands Powers. Plus one save is Thy Steel Armor. Uh, occasionally, I'll do something else, like against the Knight Army I played with three Knights, three Discos. I took Machine Flens, um, which is actually pretty cool. It's basically a smite. And then you pick a unit within six inches of the thing you smited. It's a smite for a vehicle. Uh, so against the three knights and three discos, I wasn't short of targets. Um, and then for every wound you cause that vehicle, so let's say you roll two wounds on your D3, then you pick a unit within six inches, and then you roll three up for each one you cause. So in this case, it'd be two. And then for every three up, that unit also takes a mortal. So I actually had a turn against that army where I rolled three mortals with my machine flens. Hit a different knight with the with this you know the shock bounce thing, and then rolled three three ups and just did six mortals with a, what could have been a smite. So it, it's got niche stuff. Uh, I don't often take null zone. Um, my my brain's not just running forward, you know, being like, hey, null zone. But sometimes I do, especially against like demon armies or things like that that have to come to me. Um, I take null zone and psychic fortress are pretty much my go-to against chaos. Is the exception. Um, Psychic Fortress on five intercessors, they'll tank an entire thousand sun psychic phase for a turn. That's great for me. Um, and then null zone, it's not reliable. Sevens are tough. Thousand suns deny powers. But if it goes off, like actually in the tournament, I rolled a hard ten against Magnus in my deployment zone um, to null zone him, and he just failed to deny it. So Magnus, who was going to be an enormous issue in my army, died so fast. <laughs> So sometimes it comes in clutch. Now tell me about the Tome of Malkyador, if you could. Yeah, so it's a, it's a relic you take on your librarian. Um, it lets you know one additional psychic power from a table you have access to. Mm. There's a bit of contention <laughs> on whether or not that... So like if I declare I'm taking powers from Iron Hands, there's a bit of contention on whether or not I can take a power, the third power from Iron Hands, or if I take a power, or if I can take a power from normal Space Marine table. Um, pretty poorly worded, no clear answer. Uh, I always kind of just assumed I could do it because it's simple, but uh, I did have it ruled against me in the finals of uh, Pro Tabletop, but no big deal. Uh, I don't take it often. It's just a thing to be aware of, I suppose. But that's, it's nice for something like, if it is ruled in a way where it lets you take from multiple tables, it's nice because you got your standard plus one hit, which you cast on like your Scorpius or something, or your Redemptor, and then plus one save, which you'll cast wherever you feel like it. And then, you know, you're probably not, that's, you're going to do that as your standard two every turn. And then maybe in a pinch, Null Zone just in the pocket is really useful. Also lets you get access to Might of Heroes in some games. So you could have a T8 Dreadnought with like a zero up save and the other one be like super unkillable with like the character rule and half damage and Ironstone and all that stuff. So it, it just opens up options in some games. Hmm. Now, even though the Faith and Fury rules weren't active at Pro Tabletop, 
if you were to continue running this list, would you upgrade either librarian to the chief librarian or the tech lead to the master of the forge? So my army in particular doesn't really care for the master of the forge. He is really good. Um, and I mean, if I continue taking a tech Marine, then having the option there, is really great. So I can just choose in the moment. So maybe against Eldar or something with hit modifiers, I'll, I'll spring for it. But uh, definitely what intrigues me about the new rules is the apothecary because the apothecary uh, is just, you know, a slightly better apothecary. He has a six of feeling pain or who cares, but he has a five of feeling pain or if you have the all flesh's weakness trait and the all flesh's weakness trait is for regular iron hands, not successors. So I could take my iron hands successor army, make it regular iron hands Get five of female pain for all of my infantry, as long as I run six inches of the apothecary. It could be nine inches if I do uh, Primaris Apothecary and then buy him the relic from regular Space Marines, which is plus three inches on all your auras. So at that point, my whole, all my infantry just have five of female pain. Um, and then if I'm playing regular Iron Hands, not successors, I also unlock Pharos. And Pharos has a five of Invalora for infantry, and also he makes a unit plus one to hit, and he's a tech Marine that heals flat three. He's just a good dude. Um, so all of that is stuff I'm considering. Uh, it kind of lends itself to wanting to play more infantry. Um, but at the same time, I lose a little bit of efficiency. Those suppressors don't perform the way they used to. Um, they want to then, instead of deep striking into the back corners and acting totally autonomously, like the grab pod or whatever, they kind of want to deep strike into the middle of my lines, benefit from that five up, five up. Uh, get the rerolls to hit, which will be over there instead of just rerolling ones. Then get a chapter master going reroll everything, um, and kind of do that. But that puts them in harm's way. So I think you have to reconstruct the whole list, or at least a large part of it. It's not so simple as insert an apothecary, gain female pain, done. I can't take the same army because I lose master artisans, I lose stealthy, uh, and that really diminishes my ability to play autonomously with so many of my units. As it is, I can just kind of, all of my units, I don't buy Chapter Master because all of my units are small. Five shots, reroll ones, reroll one of my twos, probably five hits, maybe at least four. I, I get to save the points on that Chapter Master. Very rarely do I roll two twos on five dice and I can't reroll both. And even if I do, so few and far between that I just don't care. Um, I lose that efficiency. Same with suppressors. They lose a lot of their efficiency. Losing Master Artisans on a wound roll on such small numbers of dice, it adds up. Uh, and yeah, you can make it up a lieutenant, but again, my army as it is doesn't want to be a ball. It wants to kind of be all over the table, or at least parts of it do. So that's I'm considering going in that direction, for sure. I don't know that that's the right move. Uh, just something I'm considering from an exploration standpoint. All right, great. Well, uh, before we get into the future of Iron Hands, why don't we hit on... How, we've talked about Pro Tabletop, Warzone Atlanta, ITC. How do you feel your list fits into all these different um, rule sets and missions? Yeah, so it's very good at ITC due to the fact that, as you said earlier, it denies secondaries. Um, people generally don't score anything on me. And so, I mean, they'll score points, but they don't max anything on me. Uh, People take Butcher's Bill begrudgingly because I'm a brigade and you're kind of like forced into that choice due to lack of other options. I'd, I'd say generally that's the right move, but you also may not max that one. Um, people take Old School and then miss killing a unit turn one. I can't tell you how many times. Probably miss my Tech Marine because he's behind the unkillable Dreadnought, so what are you getting him with? Um, last Mindbreaker and Last Strike are doable. But generally speaking, this army tables you, so you probably shouldn't bank on being alive at the end of the game to do stuff. So also ground control is kind of out the window. You could pick engineers, which is like a go-to for a lot of people, but I have so much indirect fire that you better be engineering with something ridiculously tough, otherwise it's dead. Um, like Sean, in my game against him, engineered with 20 Guardians, and he only scored two points out of it because I just killed it first. Um, you can pick Big Game Hunter for max. I can almost assure you, you won't max it. You could pick Kingslayer, uh, especially with healing, you could max it because I'm going to heal my Dreadnought. But can you even damage my Dreadnought is a great question. It's just a super hard army to get points out of. So 
naturally designed for ITC, but a good army is a good army. So in other formats like Nova or ETC, it'll definitely still function. I think in the formats that don't allow Forge World, that would be its biggest struggle because there is the... I can live without the Scorpius, but I haven't found a great replacement for the Relic Contemptor. Uh, I think without Forge World, I would then go deeper into the the pure Iron Hands route with the Intercessors and more infantry thing, um, kind of to make up for that Dreadnought. Have you ever considered a second Redemptor with uh, the Plasma Cannon? Not enough output? Or? I just don't really like it. I think it's short range. Um, I don't actually remember the range of it, but I think it's 24. It might be 36. Um, but it's also not that many shots. Uh, doesn't have the best stats. I, I want some D6 damage weapon so I can actually just put the hurting on when I want to. Uh, as opposed to just damage too, because that makes me really vulnerable to things like serpent shields and stuff. Having being the ability to just be like, here's two last hands at AP4, here's two missiles at AP3. They probably all hit, they probably all wound. You realistically have two wounds going through and then two six-up saves to make, and then that's 46 damage. Being able to do that to an Eldar tank, as opposed to being like, let me try to chip you up with some plasma damage. It's so different. It's like here, take six damage versus just pick up your tank. Yeah, that's that's very fair. I just had to ask a question. All right, cool. Yeah, no, of course. It's like I have so much like just volume attacks that do quality output, like stalker bolt rifles will hurt tanks, auto cannons from suppressors will hurt tanks. All of that works versus vehicles. I just want to be able to punch through with high AP sometimes though. Okay. Well, that feels like a pretty good first episode. I feel like we've really talked about your overall strategy with your list. Um Richard, was there any more questions you wanted to ask before we move on to episode two? Would we like to end it on where we see Iron Hands going in the future meta with all this new Eldar firepower coming in, post-chapter approved, and all the chaos kind of that will be prevalent? Yeah, let's, sure. let's do that really quick. Why don't you go ahead and jump on that, Nick? Sure. So uh, where do I see Iron Hands going moving forward with the new stuff? Um, Iron Hands have a really unique toolbox set of strats. I know most players don't even look at their strats. Some players, but Iron Hands don't even play battalions. Um, that's, I'm not saying you're wrong, uh, because that's just a different style of list. But embracing that toolbox of strats, like your characters can't be shot, you're, or like functionally passing off wounds to shield drones is what I mean. Um, blocking psyche powers, full bliss skill over, or not full bliss skill, overwatch on fives with full rerolls to hit. Um, all that stuff kind of lets you play the field, the ever-growing field with new combos, a lot better. So I would think going more into an army that can take use of those strats is really, really important uh, going forward. So, like chaos with ignores Overwatch, more uh, towns that lock you in close combat will still struggle if you can intercept them effectively. So how do you intercept them effectively with a bunch of five-man intercessor squads and crap like that? You don't really. So maybe you want to start taking 10-mans, which also helps versus like Tyranids, which I think are underappreciated at their new rules. Um, same with Orcs. Then we have things like new Eldar with the Seer Council. Uh, well, we have the four-up deny strats, so that's obviously very helpful. But the Seer Council still kind of just does what it wants. So maybe you take more indirect fire to deal with that. But Imperial Fist kill your indirect fire. So it's a moving puzzle, which is why my answer is kind of all over the place. But I think the answer is just take a toolbox stylist that, you know, the core to my brigade is not wrong. Like the core to my brigade is the core to my brigade. It does work. The parts that are malleable are like the... The dreadnoughts, which variation, how many? Is one enough? Can I get by with one, or do I need two and choose which one matters in the match? Should I explore chaplain dreadnoughts to get actual unshootable firepower that's more consistent? Should I get a second grav pod? Things like that are the future to the Iron Hands Brigade, those kinds of decisions, as well as the decision to go real Iron Hands versus successors, which I touched on earlier. But as a concept, a list doesn't need to be rewritten at all. It just needs to be refined for the meta and tweaked here and there to, to taste. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to episode 19 of the Art of War podcast. Uh, thank you, Richard, for making this discussion a very good one. Um, 
if people want to find out more information from us, they can find us at Patreon, which will be, you know, obviously in our bump at the end here, but you can find us at www.aow40k.com. And you can find us on the Frontline Gaming Network where there's lots of great shows going on. Uh, Thanks, everyone. Like the strategy discussion you heard? Want to hear more about the tactics of this list? Sign up for our Patreon at AOW40K.com where we go deep into details of optimal play. This has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40K. Hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at AOW40K.com. And of course, connect on Facebook. Just look for AOW40K. 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 Till next time.